Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're featuring a voice of eating disorder recovery. Teresa Schmitz is here to share her personal story about binge eating disorder at midlife. Teresa is a sun worshiper and beach lover who also happens to be an IT professional, a certified master coach, a wife, a mom to two young adults, and one golden doodle pooch. When she's not improving processes in IT, facilitating agile mindset training, or empowering coaching clients to become their best selves, she can be found meditating, journaling, reading, walking her dog, sitting in the sun, snapping photos, or sharing conversations with close friends and family. I just sort of want to hang out with you, Teresa, while you do all those things, because that sounds just so lovely. So Teresa recently launched her website, which we will hear about later in the podcast and blog around her coaching practice, and is writing a book about her midlife eating disorder journey that she hopes to publish soon. So thank you so much, Teresa, for being on Piecemeal. We're so excited to have you with us. Thanks, Jillian. I'm so excited to be here and to share my story. So thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Tell us a bit about your story. When were you aware that your relationship with food might be problematic? What was happening with your life at the time? What led you to seek care? Sort of walk us through that. Yeah. So when I think about my diagnosis, I guess the short answer is I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder just 21 days shy of my 46th birthday. So that's a short answer. And we know that eating disorders are not that straightforward, right? So as I think about my journey and where I ended up, I kind of think about a little bit from my childhood that carried into adulthood that then eventually came to fruition and at midlife. So I think about my childhood a little bit. I grew up in a home where my dad was an alcoholic and a workaholic. You know, what that meant is him being physically absent at times, right? Putting in a lot of energy around his work and then kind of that emotionally absent as well, being that alcoholic. And I think what I wanted to do is like this baby of four girls, right? I was a baby of the family. And seeing all the turmoil, I dove into being this perfect kid. Um, my sisters, I saw a little bit of scapegoating with them and certain things that were happening, right? And them being the scapegoat of what was going on. And so I, I really worked hard to be this perfect person. And that meant grades and like outfits, et cetera. And so, you know, that carried over into my adulthood, you know, so when it was school, then it was college, then it was my marriage, then it was my parenting and my career. And so I feel like that plus my perfectionism and then actually went through menopause and perimenopause at about the age of 40. So really around midlife. And that's again, when a lot started to show up. So as I think about, you know, my diagnosis, I think about the year I was turning 40. I went to a doctor who, you know, just had my physical and she had said I needed to lose weight. And I had been hearing this story throughout my life. It was always about the weight. You know, she said, I need you to lose weight and you need to come back in three months. And so I came back three months later and I'd actually gained weight. 
And what she said to me at that time was, you have an unhealthy relationship with food. You need a therapist. I'm going to hook you up with one. Didn't mention the Emily program at the time. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I went to see this therapist who actually told me, you need to join Weight Watchers. You know, here's my yo-yo dieting throughout my adulthood, right, that I'd been doing and striving for perfection. And so I was like, okay, I'll join it for the last time. So I did. And then that therapist happened to leave and the practice. And so then I got a new therapist who actually told me, well, you need Overeaters Anonymous. And so I continued with Weight Watchers and joined the Overeaters Anonymous and kind of felt like I was part of a cult, for lack of a better word. You know, I just kept thinking something was wrong with me. Like it's, I can't lose weight. I can't lose weight. If only I lost weight, I'd be further along as a leader in my career, et cetera. And so I just continued to have those, right, trying to lose weight, doing Weight Watchers. And then fast forward to 2016, right before my diagnosis, and this is kind of like the climax into my diagnosis. So, you know, five years later, I continued to do yo-yo dieting. I continued to be that perfect career. By now, I was the breadwinner of the family, diving further and further into my career at the detriment of my health. Um, you know, I was eating in secret by now. You know, I look back and I realize this, eating in secret, binging along the way, yo-yo dieting. So 2016 came and I felt like, gosh, I just can't lose the weight. And I'll be so much more confident in my role in corporate America if I lose this weight. And then, of course, I was going through menopause and body image things. Um, and so... I decided, okay, my silver bullet is going to be this weight loss program at my clinic. So lo and behold, the same GP from 2011 who told me I had an unhealthy relationship with food and see a therapist, she happens to be the clinical director now. And she recognizes me. She's like, okay, well, we need to treat your obesity. Like I look back and think I didn't really need to lose weight at the time. But of course, the BMI chart said I was obese. She said, we need to treat your obesity like we would treat your asthma as a chronic illness. And so uh, my program, we do an appetite suppressant. I left and I was thinking, okay, like, I'll do what the doctor says because I have this authority thing and people pleasing and perfectionist going on. So I'll do it. She's respectable. I'll do what she says, even though the warning signs, when I picked up the prescription said, you know, heart problems, if you've got heart history, my dad had died of a heart attack. I was like, Ugh. so I called her up. She's like, nope, it's short term. We need to do this. We need to treat your obesity. So I did it. And of course, I dropped a significant amount of weight in four months, right? I mean, I was starving myself. And they wanted me to follow this diet of high protein, low carbs. So here it is, 2016, I'm eating like steak and broccoli for breakfast every morning. My poor husband, on Sunday nights, I would have him grill up like fillets. And I could, I, I was like, okay, I really want that potato with the steak, right? It's steak and potatoes, but it's like, no, my diet plan doesn't allow that. 
And he was making comments like, I feel like you're on the Atkins diet. And I'm like, no, I am not. Like my doctor says, right? And so anyway, I continued on this appetite suppressant. In the meantime, I felt like things were starting to fall apart because food, I couldn't use food to soothe because I, I literally was being suppressed of my hunger, right? And knowing my hunger and fullness cues were out the window by now. And so I had moved to a new company about a year prior, highly stressful job, trying to prove myself and shit isn't working right. So I decide I'm going to move out of this toxicity. In the meantime, I'm still doing the appetite suppressant. She starts weaning me right by now and I'm starting to gain weight. And so... I move into this role at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, and it's an individual contributor role, this other role within my company, within IT. So I did, and I didn't realize how much of my identity, again, was wrapped up into that. You know, my dad had been passed away for 10 years by then, but I was still trying to prove my worth to him. And so, you know, I started to just eat, again, for comfort, right? in the closet when I'd get home from work, wherever, right? And I was binging. I was literally eating cookie dough. I'd eat my breakfast and then I'd slab off a thing of cookie dough from Pillsbury and eat it in the car on the way to work just to like suppress all the anxiety and pain I was feeling by that point. And then right after I moved into this job and that identity was falling apart, I get a call from my son who was a freshman in high school at the time. His high school called the psychologist and said, your son is in my office. I know you're en route to pick him up for a medical appointment, but he has a plan to commit suicide. And oh, my heart, I had no idea, no idea. And so now I feel like this terrible mother, this terrible worker, who's gaining weight now because my appetite suppressant, you know, I'm not taking it anymore. So of course I'm gaining everything back that I starved for. And then my weight loss clinic doctor told me you have an unhealthy relationship with food. And here I was thinking, well, of course I do because like my son, I just told you my son tried to commit suicide. Like, isn't that normal to eat like the way I'm eating? And so anyway, she suggested a therapist, but didn't refer me this time. I selected my own. Then I started seeing that therapist and again, going through a lot of stuff. Um, My oldest was going off to college in fall of 2017. I had kind of hit my rock bottom, right? I was super depressed. My oldest went away. I felt like I didn't know who I was anymore. I was in true menopause by that time, midlife, like, whoa, who, who am I? Like I'm in this career. My dad is gone. Like, what's going on? And she happened to say to me, so this is the third time I'm hearing it. You have an unhealthy relationship with food. However, she was, bless her heart. And I will thank her to this day. I even sent her a nice thank you card. She said, you need the Emily program. Have you heard of them? And I was like, thank goodness. Like someone gave me something besides another therapist and another pill. And so then I called the next day and kind of the rest is history. All of those midlife things happening and my identity really being peeled apart at midlife really 
brought to light what was probably there for a while and just kind of went undiagnosed. Yeah. Wow. What a story. I mean, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for being open to share it. It's, I think it's unfortunately all too common, right? That people feel all these things and they're, they're just not sure what to do. And then they get advice that's, you know, how about another diet that didn't work last time, but maybe this time it will be the right one. It's really incredible. Um, your story illustrates that sort of painfully and eloquently. What, what did you know about binge eating disorder before coming to the Emily program? Did you know anything? You come in and you hear this. How did you make sense of all of that when you finally had some sort of name for this, this experience you were having? You know, that is kind of an interesting story too in and of itself. So again, like I I really went in when I called and, you know, got the appointment to do an intake session. I really was kind of in this whole denial. Like I just can't lose weight again, because all those doctors had been telling me that when I got diagnosed, I seriously sat, I mean, I was in tears right in that poor therapist's office. At, at the coma location where I was diagnosed. And I honestly thought that I either answered a few of the questions wrong or that she misheard me because she was like, Teresa, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And, you know, after reviewing your questionnaire and, and talking to you here, you have binge eating disorder. And I was like, huh? And then she told me I needed IOP, et cetera. And I even went to my first IOP thinking they got this wrong. Like, I just don't know how to lose weight. I'm not good at dieting. Even though three times over, somebody had told me I had an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, Even went into that first IOP session thinking, oh, this is going to be a great way to lose weight, diet plan, right? Like, and then, you know, they put that to the kibosh, right, right away. You know, which actually felt like a relief, you know, because it almost felt like getting diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I didn't tell very many people at all at the time. And I think because one of the reasons was, I think they're going to expect me to lose weight. And they have known Teresa her whole adult life dieting and she's you know they'll make these great comments when I'm thin and they'll shy away from them when I'm heavier right and so I think it was I went in thinking it was another diet plan to be honest yeah and now I know so much more right that it is a disorder right and it is part of the eating disorder family again I think there's that stigma out there that it's a skinny 15 year old right Yeah, it turns out probably only about 10% of people with eating disorders are people we would imagine as underweight and and young. And the rest of the people look something else. So it's a great point. What, um, well, I've sort of two questions right on top of each other. But I'm curious when you, you know, when you walked into that first IOP and you're like, I don't know about this. And and something happened that changed your mind, right? Like you found out something you, maybe weren't expecting when you met those other people and were in, in group. Can you say a little bit about how that, what that was like? What did, what did you find when you started and kind of moved past the first, first sense of it, maybe being just another weight loss program? 
Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because I remember walking, not not knowing who was going to be there. Would I know someone? And I remember sitting out there. I got there really early and I was, I'm an avid journaler. So I'm journaling up a storm and, and then some other women came in and I was like, Hmm. So then we go back they lead us back to group. And I'm like, Oh, these ladies look my age. They look, you know, like me. I'm like, Holy cow. No way. And I actually started IOP. There was just four of us at the time. And we were all like about the same age and we all had the same diagnosis. So I guess then I was like, oh, wow, like I am not alone, right? Like this, this isn't just another weight loss plan, you know, because we started in, you know, talking about goals and started with cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And so it was like, oh, like this is going to be a group where I can finally like connect, right? And I remember the therapist told us like exchange phone numbers so you could text. And I was like, oh my gosh. So then it was like this texting thing. Like, and I remember being at my nephew's um, birthdays, we were having pizza and cake and I'm getting all these texts coming in from my, my fellow um, Emily program friends. And and somebody's like, who is that? And I'm like, oh, it's just me. I better silence here. So I think what it, it gave me this sense of I'm not alone. Like, you know, there are other people who are dealing with this too. Yeah. I do think that's a really common experience. Eating disorders can be so, so isolating and sort of, you know, the eating disorders goal to tell you that nothing's wrong, right? You're fine. It's nothing. It's your fault. It's, you know, it really sides with all that society junk really easily and doesn't doesn't allow for that connection so it totally makes sense that you you feel alone mm-hmm. and and we we always hope that when people you know enter into treatment whether it's with the Emily program or somewhere else that they feel like oh wait a minute i'm actually not alone and that can just be so powerful to finally have a place where you know where you belong and where people understand and you sometimes don't even have to explain all that much. They understand it. Sometimes the first time ever. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, through the IOP, it was the first time, right, that we had that community meal. Like I had never felt comfortable eating in front of others. You know, and I would usually make choices before the Emily program based on the skinniest person at the table. And, you know, even early on in my treatment, that's what I was still doing. And I remember my therapist was like, you need to stay on your own mat, my own place mat, right? That was big for me. And it was, I remember too, being the only person that first night of treatment and and they didn't tell us what to bring for a, a dinner. And I was like, like the pressure, right? And, and I packed like this little small, like, Uh, leftovers. There was hardly enough to nourish because again, I went and thinking it was a diet plan. Like I didn't bring the bun that I would normally eat at home because it was like, oh, someone's going to be judging me. And then they told me to bring dessert, but they didn't tell me like what. And so I brought like these itty bitty two chocolates and they tell me, oh, did you know that you could actually have five of those? And I was like, five? So here I am, right, doing my first therapeutic meal with my three others and then the therapist. And 
dietitian and I'm literally crying thinking I don't deserve to have chocolate. And then when they tell me I can bring five tomorrow, you know, my mind was just blown away. Like, wow, so liberating, right? So yeah, it just, it definitely, the, having that like community sense through programming, I think it, it was a savior for me, really. Yeah, that's such a, such a powerful illustration. I mean, I just think, I mean, as a clinician, it just brings sort of joy to my, to my heart to, to hear that. Cause I, I mean, I've seen that happen and I've been in those meals and it's so rewarding to be like, yes, two, you know, where's the rest of your dinner? Who's that meal for? I mean, it's so beautiful to, you know, sort of hear about that change and to feel the, the lightness and the, the joy and the, the real sort of connection to self that comes when it's okay to take good care of yourself, right? It really is. And to have that with support is, is a beautiful thing too. And I remember asking, like, can I bring fast food here? Like, uh, again, a diet plan, right? Like, I remember verbally saying, well, I, I would like to bring, like, Jimmy John's. And is that okay? And I remember they're saying, well, of course. Like, if you want to have Jimmy John's, you can have Jimmy John's. And it was just a lot of progress, right, in that whole space of, becoming comfortable again, because I was coming from the, the Atkins diet approach where I had my steak and broccoli for breakfast, you know, and that I could have all this variety and it was okay, you know, and that just blew my mind away, I guess. Yeah. And, and probably I, I think based on everything we've talked about so far, really sounds like a big part of, along with, I'm sure lots of things sort of helping you to sort of address that unhealthy relationship with food and find a a different way, which is fantastic. And well, I'll ask you a little bit about that more in a minute. But you know, a lot of people, before they come into eating disorder treatment, or before they come to the Emily program, they really, you know, they're really kind of made to feel like their their weight is the problem, like they are the problem, their weight is the problem. And it sounds like you had some of those experiences, too. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so you had the one GP, right? So she had been my GP for a while and then went on to the weight loss to lead that. Um, so it was always about the weight, right? And I also had my gynecologist. So I started seeing her when I first got pregnant with my oldest, my daughter in 1998. And, you know, even in my pregnancies, it was always about the weight. And then she would say, you know, when you turn 30, you're going to have a hard time. Then it was when you turn 40, just ask your mother. It's going to get harder. Um, and I can kind of still hear her voice. And unfortunately, just being that people pleaser and always wanting to please authority and perfectionism, I stuck with her for 20 years because she was my mom's gynecologist. She did my mom's cancer surgery. She was a good gynecologist. However, she sucked when it came to taking whole body look. And I'm so glad I did this, but it took recovery to do it. So two years ago, when I was in recovery and in programming, I came in. Of course, she applauded me the year before. Yay, you've dropped so much weight. How did you do it? And when I told her appetite suppressant, it didn't phase her, which I think just medically, I would think you would question that, right? 
but she didn't. And then, so then the next year I came back or two years, sorry, I went back in to see her later. And of course I had gained a significant. So between the two, and I remember her walking into like, she knock, knock, you know, comes in and right away, like she's looking at her laptop or paper and she's like, you have got to be kidding me. That's how she greeted me. And I was like, huh? And she walks in and she's like, you've got to be kidding me. You gained how much weight? And that's kind of how she said it. And I was just like, whoa, hi. And I remember just slouching down and I said, real, like, not confident. I said, well, I was just diagnosed with the eating disorder in October 2017. And she was like, well, I don't mean to be insensitive, but that's a hell of a lot of weight. And, you know, looking back two years now, that was two years ago, I should have just booked myself out of there and said, get, get my clothes, you're out of here. But I didn't. I let her continue to the exam. And then that next day, I called another gynecologist. I don't remember how I got the name, but somehow I did. And I called up that clinic and said, I need to transfer. What do I need to do? So, of course, I picked up all my records from a 20-year gynecologist, and I couldn't believe I read them and all the comments about my weight in there, of course. So I decided not to give them to my new office. And I went in there for my first exam, you know, the next year. And I told my gynecologist at the time, this new one, I told her what had happened. And she literally, bless her heart, she's the best. She literally held me and cried with me because she said, you should never have to feel that way. She said, and oh, by the way, I had an eating disorder as a young adult. I know what you're going through and you shouldn't have to feel like that. So again, for that gynecologist, it was always about the weight. So then you have like this voice, right? Oh, I got my exam coming. I better go on a diet. You got the GP saying the same thing. Then I started to have issues with my knee. So then they sent me to orthopedic. He kind of said, well, if only you'd lose a little weight. And then subsequently, though, I went back. So I got a cortisone shot and then subsequently went back just this last January. And that doctor actually was like, well, so I have a prescription. You're going to do three things. You're going to get a cortisone shot. You have arthritis. You're going to do PT this time and you need to lose weight. And by the way, bonus, I've got a dietitian over at uh, Health East. And I said, um, I actually see a dietitian every week. I've been diagnosed at the Emily program. I've been diagnosed with the eating disorder. And he literally was embarrassed. Like you could see the redness come over him. And so I feel like, right, only because I know what I know now, I can advocate. But back then, it was always about the weight. And I just literally didn't feel confident and didn't, again, it was, it's your fault. Every doctor's telling you to lose the weight. You're from your knees to your, I had gastro issues. It was like, oh, if you'd only eat the right things, you wouldn't have this. And it was, everything was about the weight for me. My dad's heart problems, my GP back in 2011. So my dad had passed five years earlier and she was the one that was like, you don't want to have a heart attack like your dad. I mean, she had me pegged that I was going to die by the time I was 50, right? And it's like always, always, always about the weight. Oh, wow. Those are, yeah, those are incredible stories. And I think you're right. All, all 
too common. So the the advocacy you have with the 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 last drive on the the dock with the cortisone shot, like good good for you. And and I imagine that that person will, you know, each time that they <laughs> say something, next time they'll they'll think about that. It's really you know advocacy for ourselves really allows us to use our voice to protect us and our health and and probably other people too. So not only does it get your need met, it's a it's a it's a tool to protect your recovery, but it certainly must send ripples out there to help help other people. So I'm always heartened by that. That 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 probably was a tough uh you know embarrassing moment, but a a, a great moment for you to just be in your voice and get what you needed. What, what other ways do you protect your recovery? What else do you do to protect your recovery? For me, I think a few key things is I can think about even just recently. So it took me a long time to be, again, because I came from the steak and broccoli for breakfast ordeal. And breakfast was always hard for me growing up. So I think like going back to knowing breakfast can be anything. You know, that whole intuitive eating, which I'm journeying through right now and had been working with my dietitian on, you know, and just saying what what will physically nourish me, right? What emotionally will nourish me, right? And so I have had like people in my family make a comment about, oh, that's a strange breakfast. And I will now advocate and say, you know what, like this is a good breakfast for me. Breakfast can be anything. To the point where now my daughter, who's 21 and she's at home for the summer from college, she now one morning wanted to have tacos for breakfast. And so she, you know, fried up some some meat and made herself some tacos. And I was like, amen. Like I now am showing her that you don't have to have your bowl of cereal that'll last you an hour. Like you can have something nourishing and it could be a taco. It could be leftovers. And And so I think that's one of the ways. The other way is kind of setting good, healthy boundaries too. So I used to have a hard time with authority, right? That people pleasing. And so now I can have those, what I call them dear man conversations, right? Of setting those boundaries, like with my boss, like this is what I need. He wanted me to take on new work a while back. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of stressed with what I have here, right? And so I feel like that's a way to advocate. Um, and my Emily friends, I call them my Emily friends. Uh, we ended up having more people, of course, join IOP. And so one of the three other women at the first wave of IOP, plus two others that joined, were all the same age. And we continue to hang out together. Um, with COVID, it's been a little challenge, but I guess, you know, having those Emily friends um, and having them as like a lifeline, I feel like they've been a real big part. I think just the Emily program too itself, like I can't think the program enough. I've been really fortunate with, we had an awesome uh, DBT therapist for a year. She was awesome. I have an awesome therapist um, that I work with. And then my dietitian that I worked with, you know, having those people to support me and help me continue to advocate and help me build that muscle, I guess has been really, really important for me. Yeah, absolutely. What messages do you have for other people struggling with binge eating disorder at at midlife or otherwise, when you think about where you were before you got your diagnosis and all that you went through, which I think is all too common, that there are people out there, you know, probably listening to this podcast right now, who are identifying with your experience 
what would you say to people? What's your advice or your, your words of wisdom or, or what comes to mind to you? Yeah, um, I, I've told a lot of people this, like my thought, right, when you're in it, you don't think of it this way. And now that I'm, you know, so much further in my journey, it is truly a gift. I feel like God gave me what I had and it led to this. I mean, it really has been a beautiful gift. So it gave me three really dear friends who get me inside and out. It gave me confidence. Like, I can't believe how confident I am now compared to at my highest stage of my biggest title I ever had, right? It gave me a sense to really find some hobbies. I mean, I, I remember being on a business trip in India back in like 2011. And one of the people saying to me, Teresa, you have no hobbies. Like, I'm a great leader and I got all these accolades at work. What do you mean I don't have any hobbies? So now, like in my recovery, right, in my intro, you did, like, I have so many joys outside of my title and my salary and my accountability at work. There is so much to life. And that's what I feel like you get when you give it your all. Like, you have to put in the work. You have to be willing to put your health and your recovery above everything else, even a title at work. Even family, like you have to ask them, you know, to kind of help out when you're at the height of needing to do intensive programming, if that happens. So I just feel though what you get is such a gift, like my life. I am the happiest I am ever in my whole entire life, yet being also the heaviest at my, but, and yet I am the happiest. So I feel like this greatest gift I was given from getting this diagnosis was everything I got because of it. You know, and I got a chance to really have some conversations with myself about my career. So I'm still this IT professional and I'm pulling away and also doing coaching. So, and that kind of came to fruition, right? Even more so. I think it had been there for so long. And yet I was like, well, my dad really wants me to advance in this sciencey field. I need to stay here, right? And then through recovery, I learned, no, that's not really, I was living someone else's dream for 20 some years in corporate America. Now I'm doing more of this coaching and really getting back to my roots. I think of who I am. So I, I feel like a gift in so many ways. Yeah. Tell us more about your coaching practice in this book. Oh, yes. I'm imagining like your book title could be like, steak and broccoli and potatoes for breakfast. Oh, I never thought about that. That would be a great title. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, right? I told my therapist, it was only about two months ago or three that I was like, I, I've always wanted to write a book. And I just felt like I never had a story good enough. And so I tell her on a Tuesday by Wednesday, I'm starting to write my my book. And I think I've got like, I don't know, is it like 50,000 words already? And I'm thankful that I kept a journal. That would be something else I would tell people is like, keep a journal. Like the yuck and the muck has to happen and you have to be okay sitting in it. Like I, I was diagnosed with anxiety before all this and then my depression, right, that my other therapist had told me about. And then this eating disorder. And so journaling has really been something that came to light 
before and during and after, right? And so my book, thankfully, I've got a lot written down so I can refer to where I was at. And so that's been a really fun process to kind of see my story. And that's why it was like, oh, this is easy because I've kind of written a lot about it. And then my coaching a couple years ago, so right in the middle of recovery, I knew I wanted to pursue this. Kind of ties back to I wanted to be a social worker when I was in college. And so I pursued some training on the side and I was like, this is it. And so I began doing one-on-one coaching and have been doing more and more. My ultimate goal would be to become credentialed in an eating disorder recovery type coach. Right now I'm doing life coaching with folks. If people want to find me, you know, definitely, I don't have my book published yet, yet I do have a a new website and a blog um, called mybestselfyet.com. So if you want to find me, uh, that's where you can find me. But yeah, it's just, it's all come together. And I, I, I think it's the gift I also got, right? From getting diagnosed and having, this is like my story, I'm no longer ashamed of it. Like six months ago, I was still rumbling. And now fast forward, I'm like, this is my story. This is who I am. And I have the potential to help so many more people. So I'm going to go for it. That's great. I'm so so glad you did. So mybestselfyet.com, right? Mybestselfyet.com, yes. Tom, I love that. Yeah, uh, we're excited about about your book. I I really look forward to, to seeing and hearing more about it. It's a, it really is. I mean, your story is such an illustration of so many of the themes that we hear about in eating disorders and not just in binge eating disorder, in eating disorders generally, because while there's differences between different eating disorder experiences, there's this sort of common set of experiences that, that, you know, we're starting to understand more from the brain science perspective, but from that sort of how do you get through it? You know, I remember really similarly had a, had a, it was a nurse for me a long time ago in the middle of treatment that said, you know, you, you just have to sit with this. I know it feels bad and you gotta, you gotta sit with it. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible. Why would I do that? And it turns out that that helps you get through it. So your, your story illustrates that so, so beautifully. Um, my my last question for you really is, you know, we have a lot of people who who struggle to call and, and reach out for help because they're worried about keeping everything else going, right? And you you mentioned this earlier that, you know, having to get help when you were in IOP, that you're, you know, that you're this, you know, high achiever, got it all together, doing so much, and you have to ask for help to to keep it all going. If you were, if you're talking to that person who's like, mm, I can't call, I can't do it because I just don't have time, or I just can't take the time for me, what would you say to that person? Yes, that's a great question because that person was me three years ago, you know. And I would say this is this is a matter of choosing your life, right? And, and I think coming to terms with that it's okay to take care of yourself, right? And that whole put your own oxygen mask on first because you cannot take care of anything without it. And I I was really surprised at the amount of support I got from my immediate family. They were the ones who knew, right? Again, it's that willingness to say my life matters here. Um, I'm not my best self in, in this case. Um, and it's okay. Looking back on my treatment, I 
wish I would have proposed maybe taking a little bit of a leave of absence or asking for short-term disability. It was that shame though of, well, then I got to tell them what's going on and I don't want to. And so I think it's just knowing it's okay because I think one of my therapists along the way said, if you found out you had cancer, you would go to chemotherapy, right? Okay, you just found out you had an eating disorder. Your life depends on this. And I will agree with that, you know, being recovered now that, yes, your life depends on it. And so you get the care. It's just unfortunate that society doesn't see it that way. And so I would say to those folks who are like, your life depends on this. Your career can wait. Your family can help out. You, you don't have to be the only one who does everything, right? That message of it's okay to take care of yourself. Because we would if it was something we perceived as quote-unquote medical. And there's something about an eating disorder that makes us think, oh, well, that can, that can wait. I can take care of that in my free time. But your life does depend on it. You're absolutely right. So that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I think like what is recommended, and I looked to the Emily program, right? You guys recommended what I needed, and it was almost like getting that prescription. This is what they're prescribing. They are the best at what they do, you know, and I'm I'm gonna follow that. I do have to put these other things aside. And at the time it wasn't easy. Like I was like, but I want this new job. I want to be big and better Teresa here in corporate America, you know, and so it wasn't easy and it still was a balance. And, and again, I can say this now, almost three years later, at the time I was that one saying, oh, four nights a week, three hours right after work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was that same person. Yeah. And it turns out it, you can do it. You find sort of some, what sound like kind of some magical things in a way waiting for you that can really help make it make you realize it's okay. And it's so important to do. Right. And it's, it goes along the lines of someone once said, you know, what's important you will make happen. Right. So making ourselves important, taking care of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. That's a really lovely, important sentiment. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for spending time with us. It's just been delightful to talk to you, but really, I think, impactful. And I, I really believe that your, your illustration of using your voice and, and showing oh, a, a new path to your, your best self is, is going to be inspirational for people. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I'm honored, like I said, to be able to share my story in the hopes of helping one other person out there. Absolutely. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening. 